Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth, and welcome to part two of the Maura Murray case. Now, for weeks, I have been researching this case. I have been trying to find the most recent of information that I could pass along to you, and I hope that I've done it justice. Uh, This episode, if I left it alone, would run nearly two and a half hours long. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it up for you. This time, though, you don't have to wait. I will go ahead and publish the episodes back to back. Now, I know that I've said this before, and I'll probably never, ever stop saying it, but this case is so confusing and so frustrating that it's challenging to come to any sort of conclusion where you say, yes, this is it. You have those moments, but then the further you research it, you end up back at square one. I can't tell you how often I've sat here thought I stumbled across something and then said, well, shit, there is a reason why for nearly 20 years, this case has not been solved. Even with hundreds, if not thousands of people investigating. And these are people from across the internet to retired police officers. And even the police that have this case in their hands, no one has been arrested and Mora still has not been found. We do know that the police that are investigating this case have consistently kept everything so close to the vest, it's hard not to wonder if they're holding on to something that could break this wide open. They, as far as, or at least as far as I know, haven't even released the 911 calls from that night. And because of this, it's led to all kinds of speculation, blame, accusations, and more. Now, I am not in law enforcement, so I can't speak to their reasons. But what I do know, at least I'm about 90% sure of this, is that when it comes to cases like this, the police usually keep one or two, maybe even three specific items close to their chest so that in the event that they do catch someone, it's these very specific items that only someone associated with the case would know. Now, again, I'm not in law enforcement. I'm sure that they've been instructed by someone to hold all of their cards. But at some point, you've got to say, come on already. It's been almost 20 years. You can't give us anything more. Thank goodness that other podcasters and documentary producers have had interviews with, in some cases, people who were actually at the scene the night of the accident. So at least we have some firsthand knowledge. Now, if you have ever attempted to dive into the Maura Murray case, you'll know that it's like trying to walk through ankle deep, sticky mud, literally, and That's just trying to get to the truth, to the actual facts. It is difficult, difficult, difficult. Now, before I began this journey, I knew a little, not much about the case. Um, Truthfully, I had never really dove very deep into it. Not like I have with this podcast. But what I will tell you is that while most people on message boards and Twitter, etc. have their hearts in the right place, 
you'll soon discover that even the most minute of details get discussed ad nauseum. Nothing lives in a vacuum. You have to look at the picture as a whole. Now, nonetheless, right now, I'm just ranting. So let's get on with what we know, or at least what's been discovered since Mora went missing in 2004. Last but not least, I do want to say that if there is anything during this podcast that I have missed or misspoke or need to update, don't hesitate to call me out on it. Email me at beachhouse34podcast at gmail.com and let me know. Now, if you recall, we last left off with Mora packing up some items to put in her car at UMass and hitting the road. But before we get to everything that she did after this, let me recap as briefly as I can episode one. We know that Mora was a star athlete in high school and very, very smart. So smart that she's accepted to West Point. Now, while at West Point, she makes a huge mistake and is asked to leave the school. Now, this is a point that I need to clarify, because according to journalist Clint Harding, who has been interviewed multiple times on the Missing Podcast, Mora did steal an item from Fort Knox. This is true. However, it doesn't seem to be the reason for her leaving. The theft occurred in July of 2001. It wasn't until well after this time that she left West Point for UMass. Now, you might be wondering, why was she still at West Point in the summer? You know, most students are off for the summer for break, right? Well, evidently at West Point, you are required to stay the whole summer of at least your freshman year, and they work you relentlessly. Okay, so we know that she didn't leave West Point because she was told to, although she probably did get reprimanded in some way. We do know that it appears as though Mora just felt like West Point wasn't for her, and so she transferred to UMass to study nursing. All right, on to the next item. We know that while at UMass, Mora is caught using a stolen credit card for food and is put on probation sometime in 2003 and which won't end until sometime in 2004. Fast forward a few months to Friday, the 6th of February, 2004. Uh, Mora is working a security job at Melville Hall. This is actually Thursday into Friday. And Melville Hall is just a few yards from her own dorm at Kennedy Hall. We know that she speaks to her sister Kathleen that evening. Now, earlier I had said that it was around 10.20 p.m. when she spoke to her sister, and it was. But the entire call actually went from 10 o'clock p.m. until 10.38 p.m. I later discovered that Mora called her boyfriend, Billy, after this time and spoke with him from 12.07 a.m. until 12.14 a.m. Now, this is based on Mora's phone records, and for some reason, this doesn't get talked about very much. 
Now, this same night, if you remember, a student, Petrit Vossi, got got hit by a car and the car just takes off. Now, Petrit isn't discovered until 1220 that morning, but we don't know what time he is hit. By 1 a.m., Mora is so distraught at her job that her supervisor has to walk her back to her dorm room. We also know that we were told that her 1996 Saturn was running in rough shape. It only had three cylinders. It was only running on three cylinders. Now, on the 7th of February, that Saturday after she had to be escorted to her dorm room, her dad comes to visit Mora with the intention of purchasing Mora a different vehicle. That same night, Mora and a friend attend a dorm party. Now, Mora's dad has let her borrow his new Toyota because her car is so bad. Mora decides in the early hours of the morning to drive her dad's car back to him at the motel instead of waiting until later on. Now, one of her friends thought this was kind of strange because she had been drinking. Now, while she's driving her dad's car back to him, she gets into an accident with his car. But Mora is not charged with anything. Mora then gets a ride to her dad's motel room. We don't know how Mora got into her dad's hotel room, but we do know that a call was made to her boyfriend, Billy, on her dad's phone at 4.49 a.m. Her dad didn't even know that she was in the room until around 10 o'clock in the morning. Now, when her dad finds out about the car, he's not happy, but he does eventually find out on Sunday the 8th that insurance will cover the damage. So Sunday night, the 8th, Fred has already taken off. He calls Mora around 1130 at night to remind her to pick up the accident forms and that they will go over the forms Monday night, the 9th, around 8 o'clock. At around midnight, now this is after uh, Fred, her dad, has called her. So this would also put us on the 9th of February, the day that she disappears. Mora searches for directions to the Berkshires and Burlington, Vermont on MapQuest. At 1 p.m. that same day, and this is hours later, she emails her boyfriend and tells him that she'll call him later. Mora then makes a phone call to Bartlett, New Hampshire, about renting a condo at the Atitash Resort. At 1.13 p.m., she calls a nursing friend to return some clothing, which she evidently does. At 1.24 She then emails a supervisor telling her that she'll be out of town for a week due to a death in the family, which is not true. At 2.05 p.m., she calls a number about hotels and bookings in Stowe, Vermont. At 2.18 p.m., she again calls her boyfriend and leaves him a voicemail that says that they will talk later. Maura then packs her car with clothing, textbooks, toiletries, a cell phone charger, and a travel adapter for her Samsung cell phone. Around 3.30 that afternoon, Mora then drives off the UMass campus in her Saturn. 
Now, before we get into what happened the rest of that day, I have learned a little bit more about the days leading up to the day that Mora went missing. So first, let's revisit the Petrich Vossi story. The student who was left lying on a corner after a hit and run at UMass. Now, many have speculated that at some point in the evening, Mora gets a break from her job. She drives somewhere for food or coffee or whatever and ends up hitting Petrit and then drives away, which is what makes her so distraught later on that night. It's also speculated that this is why her dad, Fred, drove up the next day to purchase a different vehicle for Mora. That Mora was the cause of Petrit's accident. She calls her dad and her dad thinks, hey, the best way to cover this up is to just go ahead and purchase a different vehicle. Now, while this makes for a really good story, it's not likely the truth. A copy of the job description for the job that Mora was doing at the time had her schedule running on that day from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m. Now, this is for six hours. During this time, the only breaks that they were allowed to take were bathroom breaks. So it's highly unlikely that she jumped in her car, drove somewhere, hit someone, and then came back to work, which is what caused her the distress. It's more likely that the telephone call right after midnight with her boyfriend, Billy, was the reason for her distress. But the bottom line is, we don't know what was said. And sure, we can speculate about it, but what's the point in that? It doesn't get us any closer to the truth. If you do know some facts about this phone call, not speculation, actual evidence, uh, please contact me. I'm interested in this. I do also want to add that there's also some information about Mora potentially getting a phone call on the landline at the security desk at Melville Hall, and that this is what upset her so much. However, I believe that this information was known before Mora's phone records were released. So here's what we do know about the phone call to the landline. We know that the campus police did trace this call, which came from a location on campus. Now, the campus police found it interesting enough that they went ahead and did the trace. But later they said that the person who had made the call from that location had, quote unquote, moved on. Now, I don't know what they meant by moved on. Do they mean left the location, left school? It's not very clear. Uh, The reason that the campus police were looking into this was because the UMass campus has its own phone system. Now, there are phones that are located throughout campus, and some of these phones are called, quote, house phones, where literally anyone on campus can pick up a phone and call somewhere. After you've made the call, since it's from campus or for campus or even public use, uh, there's no way of knowing who made the call. While it's unlikely, and I'm speculating here, that the call that made Mora so upset was from a phone located on campus, I doubt it. It was likely the phone call between her and her boyfriend that happened after midnight. Now, it seems like the information that's learned is always changing which is why the whole case has been such a hot topic for years. Nothing ever seems as definitive as it first appears. 
So again, please forgive me if I don't make mention of something or if I'm misstating something. If I am, I encourage you to let me know. And again, you can do so by emailing beachhouse34podcast at gmail.com. Anyone who has ever had an interest in this case just wants it solved. The family wants to know where their loved one is at. She is out there somewhere and someone knows something. So let's start with where we ended last time. Now that all these updates are out of the way and begin with the fact that Mora has just left campus in her not so great running car and it's 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon. And this is on February 9th. At 3.40 p.m., Mora stopped at an ATM and withdrew $280, which was nearly all that she had. Now, the ATM footage was finally released by the police department after many years, and it shows that Mora was by herself at the ATM. Mora had two part-time jobs, and she knew that the money from those would be hitting her account soon. Mora then makes another stop and she stops at a liquor store and there's some discrepancies as to what Mora purchased here. At first, it was thought to be some Bailey's, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Francia wine, which totaled about $40. The receipt in her car, however, showed that she purchased a box of red wine, a bottle of Kahlua, and a six-pack of Seagram's wine coolers. Now, according to State Police Lieutenant John Scarzina, who retired in 2009, the bottle of Kahlua was not located in Mora's vehicle at the time of the accident. Now, security footage from the liquor store shows that she was alone here, too. As it stands, it is assumed that she hit the interstate around 4 to 5 o'clock p.m. on Monday, February 9th. At 4.37 p.m., Mora calls to check her voicemail. This is the last recorded use of her cell phone. We later learn that this phone call was made to her dorm room to check her voicemail there for messages. Now, at this point, we're assuming and everybody assumes that Mora is traveling along I-91, Interstate 91 North, and that she takes the exit to reach Route 302, which would be Exit 17, off of Interstate 91. And remember, she's coming from Amherst, Massachusetts. We do know, and I'm just kind of putting this out there, that she did stop at a gas station before getting onto Route 112. Now, some have speculated uh, that she did stop yet again, to get gas because when her car was found, her tank was nearly full. Uh, before we move on, though, and to add to some of the confusion as to where Mora was coming from or going to, we have this ping on Mora's cell phone that comes from Londonderry. Now, the problem is there's a Londonderry, New Hampshire, and a Londonderry, Vermont. Now, Londonderry, New Hampshire is way, way off course of where Mora was believed to be heading. As a matter of fact, Londonderry, New Hampshire is off Interstate 93 
and this is over 80 miles away from Interstate 91. So we can assume then, based on what we know, that this ping came from a tower around Londonderry, Vermont. Now, this would be on the way to Burlington, Vermont. And if you remember, this is one of the places that she researched before she left. Now, this, quote, ping has been a source of contention in online forums and such because a phone call was made to Maura's phone from the Londonderry Tower. I think a lot of this information comes down to what is meant by the term ping or how people are using it. Um, now, after consulting with two telecommunication engineers with well over 30 years in the business, when you talk of a ping to a cell phone, that cell phone has to be in the area of the tower that it is pinging off of. Now, if you've ever drove down an interstate while you're talking on a cell phone, you'll know that sometimes you'll hit a blind spot, right? Where you might not be able to hear or talk to the person for a a really brief period of time. This is because the towers, the cell towers are handing off to one another. This doesn't generally occur in a heavy populated area, but it will happen if you're around areas where the towers are fewer, So to me, when I hear that Maura's phone pinged off of a tower at Londonderry, she was in the area. It has nothing to do with where the call originated from. The call to Maura could have originated from Paris, France. Regardless if she answered the phone or not, it would still have pinged wherever Maura was at the time. Now, why her phone pinged off of Londonderry, um, we don't know. Uh, We are also assuming that when they say ping, that they are talking about a ping from Maura's cell phone. Now, I know this sounds monotonous, and truth be told, uh, the only reason most people dive into where Maura was going or what her driving intentions were is simply because of what came after. The last known location of Maura was in the village of Woodsville, Haverhill, New Hampshire, where she lost control of her vehicle around a corner and crashed. Now, to get to this location, she would have gotten off the interstate, off Interstate I-91 North, presumably at Exit 17, where she would then hit 302 and then eventually get on Route 112. Now, the interesting thing about this route that Mora took was that it wasn't a typical route that someone would take if they were heading to a ski area or a resort in the area. Even the directions that she had from MapQuest would not have taken her in this direction. It's just not typical. Her dad, Fred, believed that she was instead headed to Bartlett, New Hampshire. Now, Route 112 would get her to Bartlett. This is where Atitash is located, but it's not the best route to take. Her dad, Fred, however, fully believes that she was in fact heading to Bartlett, New Hampshire. But we still don't know why her phone would have pinged off of the Londonderry, Vermont Tower. Maybe at first she was heading one way towards Stowe or Burlington, but then decided instead to head to Bartlett, 
uh, this would make the most sense. Um, all of this, the directions, the trip, all of it comes down to try and pinpoint Mora's timeline in the event that she ran into some issues along the way that eventually led to her crash. Now, we could talk about timelines, map locations, and pings all day long, but the fact is, Mora lost control of her car in Woodsville in Haverhill, New Hampshire on Route 112 and hit a tree so hard it spun her car around so that it was facing the opposite direction in which she was traveling. Now, later news reports said that she hit a snowbank, not a tree. And in even later reports, when uh, those who are experts in accident reconstruction, they said that the damage done to her car didn't match hitting a tree. It was also stated that she first came around the corner past the red barn. Remember, remember we're in uh, Woodsville and the red barn is an antique store uh, and hit the curb on the opposite side of the road, which then bounced the car over to where her car eventually ended up. Now, when you look up pictures of her crash site and, you know, they're everywhere on Google images, you can see what I mean by the red barn. Now, if you're interested, I will also have the latitude and longitude of Mora's crash site on Instagram. If you go to Street View, depending on the date, hopefully it's still there, you should be able to see the blue ribbon around the tree that marks the spot. It's so heartbreaking to look at that and to still, still not know where Mora is. At 7.27 p.m., a phone call came into the Grafton County Sheriff's Department. The phone call was from Faith Westman, and she was calling to report an accident on Route 112, also known as Wild Amanusik Road, in Woodsville, Haverhill, New Hampshire. Faith lives directly across the street from the accident and across the street from the Red Barn, which is actually what her and her husband Tim own. Now, it's also been stated, however, that Faith heard a thump or a loud sound outside of her home at around 7 o'clock. So my question is, if that's true, why did it take her almost 30 minutes to call the police? With that said, Faith does call at about 7.27 at night and said that a car had landed in the ditch and then told the dispatcher that she thought she saw a man smoking a cigarette inside the car, but her husband Tim disagreed and thought it was a light from a cell phone. Now, when you consider what a cigarette looks like in the dark, you picture a glowing red circle, right? The phone that Mora was using was a Sprint flip phone, which had a square screen. However, evidently the Sprint flip phones did have a red light on them when someone was using the phone. So could this tiny red light then be misconstrued as a cigarette? Uh, Faith later amended her statement, saying that it could have been a reflection of light off of a car window. You know, also, I'd be curious if the car smelled of cigarette smoke. 
Um, it doesn't mean that at some point since owning the car, Mora didn't give a ride to someone who smoked, maybe even several times. So a lingering smell might have been there. But if someone was recently smoking in the car, it would smell stronger, right? All this aside, just consider for a moment the fact that both of her airbags went off inside the car. If there was a second person in the car smoking a cigarette or not, would the airbag have deployed? Now, I know in today's world, the airbag isn't necessarily activated on the passenger side unless it detects some kind of weight there. Now, I don't know if this was true in cars built in the late 1990s or not. Um, Even if it was, though, I know that I personally have had fairly heavy purses that I've sat on the passenger seat of my car and the car thought that someone was actually sitting there. So the airbag was active. So maybe this is why if someone was smoking and riding in the passenger seat, the airbag even uh, when it went off, would have essentially extinguished or even threw the cigarette elsewhere, right? Not to mention, there would have likely been a smudge or some kind of stain on the airbag itself from the cigarette. Hell, if someone else was in the car and they got hit with the airbag, then their DNA would be on it too, right? Now this, however, this is all assumption, Um, But I'm more inclined to believe that it was just the light from Mora's cell phone. Now, other reports also say that Faith saw a quote unquote flurry of activity at the trunk of Mora's car. Now, next thing we have is we have a school bus driver who lived just 100 yards past the accident site. This gentleman's name is Butch Atwood. And he was around 58 years old at the time. He stopped at the accident scene and said that he saw a young woman walking around the vehicle. And Butch actually just happened to be the very last person to ever see Mora. Now, Butch noticed that the young woman wasn't bleeding or injured, but that she was very cold. Butch told her that he would call for help but she asked him not to call the police. Now, in one report, it was stated that she pleaded with him not to call the police. Now, Butch said that the young woman said that she had already called AAA, which Butch knew would have been impossible because in that area, there wasn't any cell phone reception. Now, later, I learned that according to the missing podcast, Faith Westman, that 727 p.m. call, she actually didn't even make that phone call to the police until after Butch had already stopped and spoken with Mora. After Butch spoke with Mora and seeing as she was seemingly okay, Butch continued home where he then called 911. Now, Butch's call came into 911 at 743 p.m., This is 16 minutes after Faith Westman first called. Now, this was one part of Butch's explanation. We find out later that Butch had several different versions of what happened that night. Butch said that he spotted a car 
nearly sideways on the road. He rushed down, and I'm going to pause here for a second because I think that the assumption has always been that Butch was coming from the west past the red barn, and this will make sense here in a minute, heading east towards his house when he came across the accident. Now, in this particular statement, it makes it sound as if he came from the east. He noticed the car 100 yards down the road from his house and then went to the scene. So let's continue with Butch's statement. He said he, quote, rushed down to see if he could help. She had spun on the curve. She had no lights on and it was a dark car. I could just about see it, presumably from his house. I put my flashlight in the window. She was behind the airbag. All I could see was from her mouth up, unquote. Now, let's remember that in a previous statement, he said that she was already walking around the car. So let's continue. Butch stated, quote, I yelled in and she said she was okay. She was shaking as anyone would be if they'd just been in an accident. He described Moore's struggle to squeeze her way out through the driver's door of the car that he said had sustained considerable front end damage. Now, another quick quick insert here. In later reports, the driver's door is wide open. Yet another statement has from Butch has Mora standing on the driver's side of her car outside and about 15 to 20 feet away as she spoke to Butch. Now, Butch was a fairly large man and may have been intimidating to Mora. And this is according to Butch's wife, Barbara, who said, quote, he's 350 pounds and has this mustache. Now, Butch offered to let Mora wait at his house until the police got there, but she wanted to wait with the car. Butch told her to turn on her headlights so that the other cars coming around the corner would see her. He then left and drove back to his house. Butch then continued with his statement, quote, I told her I was going to run up to the house and call the police. She said, no, 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 please don't. I already called AAA. Well, under my breath, I said, that's a lie. You can't make a cell call from here. Cell reception is poor throughout the area. Despite her protests, Butch said he did call the police. But when he got or when he went back outside, she was gone. Quote, I guess I was the last one to see her. I heard a couple cars go by when I was on the phone, but I didn't see her get into a car, and I don't know which way she went. We're all just dumbfounded by this. What bothers me so much about this statement about the quote, I heard a couple cars go by, was that in an even later statement, Butch said that he was standing outside, outside of his house, making the 911 call, and even though he was outdoors, he still couldn't see Mora's car. But what bothers me about this particular statement 
was that he said a few cars passed by. Not that he heard them, as he had previously said, but presumably that he had actually saw these cars. Now, when Butch called 911, his call ended up rolling over to Hanover County Dispatch, which was not his personal dispatch place. This is because uh, if a 911 call isn't answered within three rings, it automatically rolls to the next dispatch center. When the Hanover Dispatch Center called Butch's number back, it was instead Butch's wife who answered the phone and said either, quote, the girl's not here or the girl's gone. Next, we have someone who drove by the accident called Witness A that we later have learned is Karen McNamara. Now, Karen, she was just getting off of work. She left her job at around 7.15 and had called her family ahead of time to let them know that she was leaving, as was her habit. She did this every day because there was a stretch of road on Route 112 past the same or on the same route past where Mora uh, would have had her accident. And it was a 40 minute drive that didn't have any cell service. So Karen arrives on the same road as the accident scene around 7.37 p.m. Now, according to Karen, it doesn't look like an accident. Mora's car had been facing the wrong direction and was up against a snowbank. Now, Karen did pull over to the side of the road and turned around to look back at the accident. She thought she might be able to help, but with no cell service, in the area, she couldn't call anyone. Plus, a police vehicle was already there, although she saw no one around the vehicles. The next time that Karen was able to get cell service was about 14 minutes away at Beaver Pond. So Karen decided to continue driving on east until she could get cell service. At 7.40 p.m., and this is just Three minutes after uh, Karen noticed the vehicles, another neighbor just up the street and across from Butch Atwood's house named John Marat calls 911 about the accident. His wife, Virginia, stated, quote, from our kitchen, we saw a car down the road with trouble lights flashing and someone walking around the car. John Marat later told a private investigator that he thought he saw the car back up so that it was parallel to the road indicated by the car's rear lights. So does this mean that the car was still somewhat drivable? At 7.46 p.m., according to police records, police officer Cecil Smith arrives after receiving the call from Faith Westman and or, you know, dispatch called Cecil after they received the call from Faith Westman. And he comes around the corner. He sees the car. He sees Mora's car facing his direction on his side of the road. No one was around the vehicle. Here's what's interesting, though. According to the missing podcast, the responding officer 
they don't give his name, but at this point we're assuming it's Cecil, says that on the 9th, around 7.30 p.m., is when Cecil arrived at the scene driving vehicle number 001, which was an SUV. Now, we aren't sure why the official police record says something different as far as the time frame goes. You know, maybe it wasn't until 7.46 that Cecil called into dispatch to let them know that he was there. Uh, Nonetheless, what's important is that when he arrived, the car was locked and no one was around. Since he was responding to Faith Westman's phone call or 911 call and Faith's house was literally steps away from the accident site, Cecil went to go speak with Faith and Faith's husband since no one was around the vehicle. This means that between the time Mora spoke with Butch, Faith called 911 and the police arrived at the scene about five or so minutes later. And in that brief period of time, Mora had literally vanished. Now, Butch also said that he saw the police SUV arrive at the scene. This also further explains why when Karen, witness A, drove past the scene, she didn't see anyone. Mora was already gone and Cecil had walked over to the Westmans. Now, after Butch had made his phone call to 911, he reportedly went back out to his bus to finish up paperwork. Remember, he's a school bus driver to finish up paperwork. And this is not unusual at all. Uh, Cecil had then walked up to Butch's house where Butch was still inside his bus doing paperwork Cecil knocks on the bus door and asks Butch what he knew. So Cecil specifically asked Butch who was there at the scene when Butch arrived. And Cecil asked if the woman that Butch had seen seemed okay. Butch told him that he thought Mora had been drinking because she had slurred her speech and she had to lean on something while she was standing there. So again, he's saying that she's standing there. He did mention to Cecil that she had asked Butch not to call the police. So again, we have this other version from Butch. Now, this particular small version from Butch is only according to a statement by Cecil Smith himself. Not from Butch, but from Cecil the police officer who responded. According to reports, the driver's side of the vehicle had been severely damaged. The driver's side headlight had been pushed in and had been pushing up against the car's radiator into the fan, making the car inoperable. But if this is true, then how could the car have backed up as was stated by the Marats who called 911. And remember, they said, you know, it looks like that she tried to park parallel to the road. The driver's side windshield was also cracked. But the crack in the windshield wasn't, at least to me, where it should be uh, for somebody of Mora's size. Uh, The crack was actually 
much higher on the windshield. Um, now she may have hit her head. Um, now, albeit at a very odd angle, you know, Mora is all of five foot seven and maybe 120 pounds. But what we do know, as mentioned before, both airbags had been deployed. Now, I want to pause here for a second, because as I'm going through this story, you can at the same time, if you'd like to, uh, and if you're able to, uh, Google all of these images. All of these images are available um, online. So you can see what I mean by the front of the car and where the crack in the windshield is. Now, back at the scene, Cecil is looking inside the car and he sees something red splashed on the interior of the driver's side door and on the inside roof of the car, um, also called the headliner. Now, remember, though, that Mara made a stop at the liquor store, right? She got Kahlua, the vodka, etc. Now, none of this was recorded in the police report, which was written six days after the accident as having been found in her car. Uh, the only thing noted, um, I believe, was the wine box that was crushed behind her seat, which is supposedly what made these red splashes on the uh, driver's side door and on the headliner of the vehicle. Upon closer inspection of the inside of the car, and I'm not certain when they searched it, because remember... When Cecil arrived, he was like, hey, the car was locked. Um, Cecil also found inside the car a AAA card issued to Mora, a Coke bottle that contained, quote, a red liquid with a strong alcoholic odor, blank accident forms, uh, gloves, CDs, makeup, jewelry, a stuffed monkey. This will become important a book entitled Not Without Peril, which is about mountain climbing in the White Mountains and driving directions to Burlington, Vermont, along with directions to Stowe, Vermont. This information is according to an article in Boston Magazine. But as I've said before, we'll come back to these items here in just a minute. It was later learned that the Coke bottle was not located until the car had actually been towed away. Now, what's kind of sweet and horribly sad at the same time is that the Coke bottle also contained a Twizzler. And it was said that she liked to use Twizzlers as straws. Items that were not found within the car were Mora's debit and credit cards or her cell phone. None of these items have ever been located, as far as we know. Mora's cell phone was a silver Sprint flip phone, and while they did try to trace it, they couldn't, uh, either because the cell coverage was so bad or the battery had died. She likely also had a backpack with her that also was not found. Now, this backpack was unique because the logo on the back of the backpack would have been colored in. And the reason for this, according to her sister Julie, 
is that because at West Point, you weren't allowed to have logos showing on any of your items. So you had to hide them. And usually that meant you darkened them or colored them in. Now, another interesting thing is that shortly after Mora was considered missing, her dorm room was searched and pictures were released. Now, we'll get to the photos in a little bit, but what struck me in these photos was that this stuffed monkey that evidently was stated was found in her car is actually hanging right there by its hands off of a pipe in her dorm room. So either there was no monkey to begin with, uh, the reporting was wrong about finding a stuffed monkey in the car, she had two monkeys, or the photos inside the dorm room were taken before she even left. Now, another item found in Mora's car, I'm not sure where, was a random part from a Chrysler vehicle. And on the rear bumper of Mora's car was a white scuff mark. So all of these things considered, um, and because one of these soda bottles smelled like alcohol, one assumption would be that she had been drinking. However, remember, her windshield was cracked as if she had hit it during the accident. So another possibility could be that she had suffered a pretty severe concussion. According to the Mayo Clinic, concussion symptoms include dizziness and slurred speech. Cecil didn't know what happened to the driver of the car. So what he did is he enlisted Butch to see if he could go around, drive around and look for Mora. Butch drove in a loop from Mountain Lakes to the Swiftwater Stage Stop General Store. He is quoted as saying, quote, I took a ride around the back roads. I was gone about 15 minutes and then I took a ride to French Pond. Cecil then looked around the immediate area of the accident on both sides of the road for any footprints in the snow and he didn't find anything. In the meantime, state trooper John Monahan, he heard this call come in about the accident and since he was nearby, he headed over to the accident scene. John pulled up next to Cecil and asked him if he could do anything. Cecil then told him that Butch was out driving around looking in the Mountain Lakes area, so John said that he too would drive around to see if he could locate Mora. So John turned around and went back towards the town of town of Swiftwater because it made sense that someone who was just in an accident would likely head towards civilization. As John drove, he confined his search to where there were people and stores that had cameras. These stores were Cumberland Farms, Sean's, and Quick Stop, which today is called Shaw's, but in 2004, it was called Butson's. Later, John evidently did pull the tapes from Butson's, but he didn't find anything. He didn't see anyone that resembled Mora. And after about an hour of doing this, this search, he left and he never did interview anybody. So I'm not exactly sure when these tapes were looked at or if they were at all. Now, John Monahan as of the middle of 2007, was actually assigned to work at the Registry of Motor Vehicles. 
Now, Karen, the woman who we now know is witness A, and she had, remember, had left work and she had been driving home when she came across the accident site. When she finally reached Beaver Pond, where her cell phone connected, she made two phone calls. Now, the first one that she made was at 7.52 p.m., which means it puts Karen around the crash site near 7.37 p.m. Remember, though, that the official police record states that Cecil Smith, the responding officer, didn't arrive until 7.46 p.m., but Karen saw a police vehicle there at 7.37. We now know, however, and this is according to a statement made by Cecil during a documentary, that the police Records just must not be accurate because Cecil said that he was there much earlier than the 7.46 p.m. At 7.56, the EMTs arrive. They said that the car had struck a tree and had impacted it so much that it had spun the car around and the car was facing the opposite direction. No one was at the site when they arrived. One of the EMTs did say that there wasn't a lot of damage done to the car. And as one EMT walked up and down the snowbanks, you know, they're there looking for somebody. His partner asked, what's with the rag in the exhaust pipe? According to the EMT that was interviewed, he said it looked like a dish towel. It looked as if it were stuffed into the tailpipe and it hung out about eight inches or so. He had never seen anything like this before. Now, this EMT, his first thought was that maybe she had stopped at a nearby store and someone had sabotaged her car trying to make it stop. Another report, however, and this is why this case is so confusing. Another report said that Cecil found the rag. Now, regardless, this might explain the flurry of activity around the trunk that was reported by Faith when she had called 911. My question is, did the police ever test the rag? If someone really did purposefully put a rag in Maura's tailpipe, it could have meant that that same someone followed her until the car gave out and then stopped to, quote unquote, help. We later find out from Fred, Mora's dad, that this is something that he had taught Mora to do with her car. And we'll go over this in a little bit. The bottom line is no one could find Mora. We even know that witness A, Karen McNamara, continued on her route east of the accident site. If Mora was walking that way, she surely would have noticed her. Now, while Butch and John, the state trooper, they do this cursory check of the area driving up and down the roads, Cecil is checking both sides of the roads for road for footprints in the snow. No one can locate Mora. The woods, however, were not searched thoroughly that night. Now, before eight o'clock that night, a EMS and a, a fire truck arrived. By 8.02, the EMS had cleared the scene And by 8.49, the car had been towed to 10 miles away to Lavoie's Auto Care Center on Route 10 in Haverhill. By noon on on February 10th, 
and this is Tuesday, Mora was still not located. So a bolo was put out for her. They said that she had black hair that hung past her shoulders. Even though she was known to wear it in a tight bun most of the time, this information didn't seem to make it into the bolo. They also said that she was five foot three and weighed 120 pounds. She was wearing a dark coat, jeans, and had a black backpack. Her height was later corrected to say that she was five foot seven with shoulder length brown hair and blue eyes. But again, if you go on Google, and her sister has even stated this, you notice Mora, 95% of the time she's got her hair in this tight bun behind her head. Now, her hair could have been a mess from the accident, right? Maybe this particular day she just decided not to put it in a bun. I mean, there's always the 5 to 10% chance that she would, you know, change the way that, that she looked for some reason. But nonetheless, there's this bolo out uh, for somebody that has an appearance that could be quite different than what Mora actually looks like. Now, it wasn't until 3.20 on Tuesday, February 10th, that a voicemail was left for Mora's dad. And what happened here is that when they left the voicemail for Fred, he said it was stated in this voicemail that his car, his car, had been found abandoned in Woodsville. Now, the reason he was called was because he was the registered owner of the car. At the time that this message came in to his home, he was working out of state, so he didn't receive this information right away. Now, Mora's oldest sister, Kathleen, however, was contacted, and she was able to get in contact with their dad. So Fred then called the Haverhill Police Department and told them to start searching for Mora right away. But they told Fred that the New Hampshire Fish and Game could start a search on Wednesday if she had not yet been located. It wasn't until 5.17 p.m. on Tuesday, February 10th, that Mora was considered missing by the Haverhill Police Department. Now, Fred, he arrived very early in the morning of Wednesday, February 11th, also to the Haverhill Police Department. It's now been well over 24 hours since Mora went missing. And on this same day, the official search for Mora began. About 36 and a half hours from the time of the crash. Now for the search, fish and game were brought in. They used helicopters with FLIR and infrared cameras. Uh, FLIR cameras detect heat. Another team came in with canines to search the ground area. Uh, the canines were given a glove out of Mora's car to find her scent. Now, while this normally would make sense, the problem with the gloves that were used was that they were brand new. Mora's dad was upset that the police didn't use something of hers that she may have worn more often. Or did they even bother to ask the family which item they should use? Fred wasn't even sure she had even worn the gloves yet at all. 
Now, the dog tracked Mora's scent to near the Bradley Hill Road and Route 112, about 100 yards east from where her car was found. Now, there's some inconsistencies with where the dog lost the scent. In one documentary, they made it appear as though the dog had lost the scent going west on Route 112 toward the Red Barn and towards town. In another documentary, which would uh, which was actually released much earlier, it was Maura's dad, Fred, who walked you to where her scent was lost, and it and this lost scent ends near a building heading east. Now, because the dogs lost her scent, the police then believed that she had left the area in another vehicle. Now, that being said. It appears as though Mora's scent was lost 100 yards east of her vehicle's location. Now, at this location, you'll find the home of Butch Atwood, Atwood, the bus driver who was the last to see Mora. And on the other side of the road is the home of Rick Forcier. He is a 45-year-old contractor who lived in a trailer on his property while his home was being constructed. Now, Rick, he was first questioned by police 10 days after Mora went missing. But according to him, he did not see anything. And later on, this in, this information will become important. Additionally, there is also the home of Virginia and John Marat, who live next to Rick. And if you remember, they also were ones that had called 911. Foot searches were also done in the area, in the search area, and all of it encompassed about a half a mile radius to start. No footprints were located that couldn't have been cleared or accounted for. There's no details on this, or at least I couldn't find it, so I don't know exactly what they mean by this. Even the weather, though, had cooperated. There hadn't been any additional snowfall, and the winds hadn't picked up either, which means that the conditions in which they were searching were nearly identical to the night that Mora went missing. So there's at least one plus. After the search began, Fred headed to Route 112 to help, to help in the search. He walked along the street where Mora's car had been found, and he then walked around looking for clues to help find his daughter. Now, Mora's mother, Lori, who at the time of Mora's disappearance, She had a broken ankle and she was not able to join in the search. However, she was quoted as saying, quote, I'm hoping someone will see her and call someone to let us know she's all right. We're just sitting on eggshells waiting for that. Now, sadly, Mora's mom passed away in 2009 on Mora's birthday, May 4th. This same morning, of Wednesday, February 11th, Mora's boyfriend, Billy, who, remember, was an army sergeant and was stationed in Oklahoma, about 1,800 miles away, he was able to get a leave of absence to go help in the search. He headed to the airport to catch a flight, and uh, while headed there, while going through airport security, he had shut off his cell phone. When he turned his cell phone back on, there was a strange message on his phone. According to Billy and Billy's mom, he had received a voicemail around seven o'clock that morning 
Now, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure he's probably talking about 7 o'clock in the morning Oklahoma time and not, you know, East Coast time. But nonetheless, uh, he thought that it was the sound of Mora sobbing. The call was traced, and it was traced to a calling card issued to the American Red Cross. Now, Bill had his mom also listen to the voicemail because, or and she believed that she heard, quote, soft, shivering sounds and sniffling. Now, the call did not originate from Mora's phone because, as said, when Bill called back, Billy called back on the number, it was it went to a phone that had been had used a prepaid calling card. Now, this was not unusual. Mora used to often use calling cards uh, to phone Billy. As a matter of fact, in 2003, when Mora was at Billy's house for Thanksgiving, it was Billy's mom who had given Mora these prepaid calling cards. The rest of Mora's family, including her sisters, Kathleen and Julie, her two brothers, her boyfriend, Billy, who was on the way, and Billy's parents, who came from Ohio, uh, arrived later on that day to help in the search. Now, Mora's brothers and sisters, they drove east on Route 112 to as far as North Woodstock and Lincoln, and then they crossed the Kankamangas Highway into Bartlett and Conway, hoping to locate Mora. Now, these places were all very familiar to the family because they had taken many summer vacations there. They checked motels. They handed out flyers. They hung out, hung flyers at gas stations, at police stations, at bus stops. And eventually they all gathered at the Wells River Motel, where it kind of became a headquarters of sorts for the search of Mora. It wasn't until around five o'clock that night uh, when the Roush family, which would be Billy and his parents, arrived at the Haverhill Police Department. And Billy's mom is quoted as saying, quote, Billy was extensively interrogated in private. And then Bill, Billy's dad, and I were questioned in the room with Billy. Fred was asked if anything traumatic had happened with Maura recently. And, you know, the only thing he could think of was the accident that she had had with his car. Uh, but Fred said it wasn't a big deal. Maura's family, along with Billy and his parents, continued to pass out flyers with Maura's pictures on them on both sides of the border in New Hampshire and Vermont. Her dad, Fred, was quoted as saying, this is very unusual. It's not like her to just take off. Billy's mom, Sharon, also said, quote, she's extremely responsible and an extremely frugal girl. I think she wanted to get away and get her head on straight. We have no reason to believe she was running away. She's a jewel of a girl. Sharon further said that Mora had left an email with her son, Billy, on Monday afternoon. And in that email, Mora had said that she wanted to talk. Now, this would be the email that I mentioned earlier where Mora promised to call Billy later that day. By seven o'clock that night, the police held a meeting and said that they believe Mora came to the area to run away or to attempt suicide, which her family believed was unlikely. The police found no signs of foul play 
or that Mora had wandered off into the woods. Now, another piece of interesting information, if if true, evidently this can be verified, is that on February 12th, so this is a few days after Mora goes missing, Liz, a friend of Mora's, uh, said that she received an email from Mora. And in this email, Mora was saying that she wanted to go see Dane Cook. Now, this is three days after Mora goes missing. It's documented somewhere, but I haven't found any further information on this. When a news report came out that Mora was missing, Karen McNamara, witness A, uh, the woman who had driven by the scene after work, who, who had stopped and then continued on, uh, she took notice of this news story because the news said that if anyone knows anything, to call the police. So she did. Karen told the police that at the time she drove by the accident, she said that there was already a black and white SUV there with the number 001 on it. They asked her if she was certain about the car number, and she said, absolutely, I know without a doubt it was car 001. Now remember, according to records, Karen would have driven by the accident site around 7.37 p.m., about 10 minutes after Faith Westman had called 911. So two days later, to Karen's surprise, the police call her back, and they ask her again, are you sure it was 001? She told them yes, but she thought that it was really odd that they would call back and ask that question. And I agree with her. I mean, that is very strange. Remember, though, if the police have in their records that Cecil didn't arrive at the scene until 746, it would be likely that they would also be confused as to what Karen saw. It should be noted here that it was Cecil himself who said in an, in an interview for a documentary that was aired on the Discovery Channel that it was him in the 001 SUV around 7.30. So why then have these police records not been amended? And we may never know the true story around this because... Sadly, Cecil took his own life in 2018. It's been speculated that it has um, a lot to do with this case. In one blog post, it is said that uh, one podcast in particular was pretty relentless in blaming him for Mora's disappearance. And of course, the podcaster's fans just fell in line with accusation after accusation. The bottom line is no one, no one, has yet been arrested for the case of Mora. And as far as I know, no one's even been named as a suspect. On Thursday the 12th, police held a press release that said that Mora may be heading towards Kankamangas Highway and was listed as, quote, endangered and possibly suicidal. Now, just to give you some bearings as to what he means by this, the Kankamangas Highway is actually the same as Route 112. Um, it's also said that, quote, witnesses at the scene report seeing a lone female with no apparent injuries who appeared impaired due to alcohol. Now, the thing is, 
No one knows at the time who exactly these witnesses were that claimed Mora appeared to be intoxicated, aside from the one conversation we have between Butch and Cecil the night of the accident. Now, Mora's dad and her boyfriend, Billy, they held a joint press conference in Bethlehem, New Hampshire, and Fred is quoted as saying, again, this is very unusual. It's not like her to take off. Fred then looks into the camera and pleads for Mora to come home. He says, I don't know what the matter is or the trouble you think you might be in, but it isn't anything we can't solve. It's me. You can tell me. We'll work it out and we'll solve it. It wasn't until later that day or the next, I'm sorry, I apologize, I'm not quite sure of this timeline, that the first newspaper coverage on the case was published. Now, in this newspaper report, uh, the chief of police in Haverhill, Chief Williams, describes Mora as, quote, possibly suicidal. Well, of course, all the other news outlets saw this and just ran with it. Uh, Chief Williams is again quoted as telling a New Hampshire TV station that, quote, we did an intense search of the crash scene area for evidence that she may have walked into the woods, but nothing like that was uncovered. The police were suspending their search until new leads developed. Family members, however, continued their search into Vermont on the 13th, thinking that, you know, Mora could have been headed to Burlington or to Stowe. Interestingly, according to Julie, Mora's sister, the Westmans actually invited Fred inside their home after he had arrived so that he could look out the same window that Faith was looking out of when she saw the shortly after the accident. Now, Fred said he had a clear view of the exact spot where it occurred. Faith told Fred that the police arrived five or six minutes after she had called. And then Faith continued to say that she did not continue to look out the window. And this I do not 100% believe. And the reason for this is because all of us, all of us, I don't care who you are, just as human beings are curious. Plus, this wasn't like a normal everyday occurrence, right? That she didn't keep watching to see if anything occurred after the crash is just really hard for me to believe. Plus, how would she know then what time the police arrived if she wasn't looking? It's possible she may have seen the lights coming down the road from her house, but we don't know if the police used lights or not. Now, regardless of this, however, if Faith called at 727, this means a police vehicle would have been there around 732 to 733, according to Faith, and which we later then find out from Cecil, this is approximately the time that he arrived. And to top it off, this would also work with the timeline of Karen, witness A, who drove by the scene around 7.37 p.m. and said that she saw a police vehicle there. The bottom line is, since the day that Mora went missing, there has never, ever, even to this day, been a confirmed sighting of her. And that, my friends, is the end of 
this particular episode. However, it doesn't mean that it's the end of the story. There is still one more podcast episode to go and you can just flip right over and listen to that because I'm going to have both of them available at the same time. Furthermore, if you are listening to this and you have any information on the case, no matter how small or how trivial you may think it is, please, please contact the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-223-3648 or by email at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. Thank you for listening.